went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. My name is Nigel McGuinness and this is my unconventional life. It's a podcast, it's a journal, and in a way it's kind of a personal ad. But most of all, it's about navigating the treacherous waters of love, sex and relationships in 2016. Sponsored by nobody right now. Every week I detail my own journey and discuss my own untraditional views and aspirations in that world. Whatever the topic, whoever the guest, it all comes back to one question. How do we best find and express love in 2016? So I met up with Rachel and we talked a lot about a lot of different things. Didn't really iron everything out. Um, I'm not sure we really came to any conclusions necessarily but it was a good talk um and then we made out <laughs> um i don't know I, I always said that um i'd just as likely be dating her as having a kid with her i just attracted and sort of really impressed with her um so yeah we made out a little bit of dry humping and um <laughs> having to get too graphic um a little bit of friction and a little bit of soreness from aforementioned friction. Not to mention the fact that she was also on her period. Um, so it kind of stopped at that point. And in hindsight, I think that's probably the best thing. I mean, my whole reason for wanting to have a parenting partnership originally, at least one of the big ones, was the fear that mixing sex and parenting partnerships would confuse things and that perhaps I wouldn't real perhaps I wouldn't see the real person I think I found a place where I want to have kids here in Burbank uh, it's close to where the Wonder Years was filmed originally and just down the street from where I've been working it's um just a nice area it kind of reminded me of the neighborhood that my grandparents used to live in would go and visit just had a strange sense of belonging there, you know. But at the same time, it kind of made me think that it won't be with either of the prospective parenting partners I've met so far. I don't know why, it just... Neither of them seem to fit within me living there, if that makes sense. But I've got to believe that there's somebody out there, especially in a city like LA, that, you know, wants the same thing as me. Surely somebody feels the same way. But there is that still, that confusion about sex and parenting partnerships. Rachel always said at the beginning that it was better to keep the two separate. But now, with me, she's kind of changing her mind. And she thinks that if you can wear separate hats and you can decide whether someone's a good partner as a lover and a good partner as a parent, they can perhaps be both. Um, but they have to be different things in your head, I guess. For me, though, the dilemma is this. If I find someone that I want to have a kid with, there's no doubt that I'm going to be attracted to them and then wants to have sex with them. But then what happens if when she has a kid, it confuses things? I mean, what if she doesn't want to have sex with me anymore? What if I don't want to have sex with her? 
I mean, if it's someone that I don't want to have sex with, then there's a good chance I won't want to have kids with them anyway. I got to thinking that, you know, if people didn't have sex, they'd almost never choose to be parents. You know, it's as though God invented sex so we would procreate with people who more often than not are not good fits as parenting partners. I don't know, I'm so confused and quite depressed. It just seems impossible. And then Supermom texted me. And we had a really good talk, you know. I feel a good deal of rapport with her. But it's still the distance, you know. She lives uh, about 100 miles from me, and I need to be here in LA for work. So is the distance going to be impossible? I mean, am I going to be miserable if I only get to see my kid on weekends when I'm working on an editing gig? I just don't know. I mean, when am I going to get the answers to these questions? And am I going to spend the rest of my life asking these questions and never get anywhere? I mean, fortune favours the bold and at some point you've got to move forward. The question is when? This week's interview is part one of the interview with Rachel, one of my prospective co-parents. Rachel is wonderful. Um, she was really the godmother of parenting partnerships. She did this 24, 25 years ago and did it again seven years ago with two different parenting partnerships. Um, she's really intelligent and she's kind and she's interesting and she's just impressive. I mean, you just have to listen to how she talks with conviction, but with education as well. Don't want to spoil it. Um, enjoy it. This is a great interview and she's a great person. Um, here you go. Rachel Hope, over to you. So Rachel, my dear, you are here live and in person. It's, um, this is going to be great. I'm really excited about this because, you know, I've been talking about you so much on this podcast so far and here you are, as I said, live and in person for the last, what, six eight months you've been in Germany, um, life going in various different directions. So it's nice to have you back here. So how are you feeling? Good. It's a beautiful day in Studio City. It sure is. So um, I've talked briefly about you on here, obviously, because, you know, I gave a little bit of a monologue when I started out about who I am and where I was and all my potential possibilities in the parenting partnership world. But uh, just uh, give us a brief rundown, if you could give us the Wikipedia Reader's Digest version of yourself and your life. Well, um... it's a tough question, isn't it, right? <laughs> I, I mean, do it a lot, actually. Um... We met off of Modamly, um, and I remember when I first met you, I was excited as much just to learn about the whole process because you've done this twice before and you're a proven commodity in that sense. You could even say uh, maybe you're the the grandmother or the mother of parenting partnerships, right? I like to think of myself as the godmother of the parenting partner or parenting partnered movement, you know? Right. And now you started, this was way before that was even a term, way before IVF was even a thing. Mm. Well, tell me about when you first decided to be a parenting partner. Well, it was like 26 years ago or more that I realized I didn't want to have a conventional family life or conventional marriage, that I, I didn't have a lot of faith in 
in that whole scenario, because all around me were people divorcing, everyone in my family divorced. Hmm. It seemed like too great of a risk for my most precious children that I wanted to have. That was my dream in life. Right. Which, which makes sense. That's how I kind of felt the same way. But this is what I don't understand is because everybody else sees the world the same way. I mean, in the sense that they're aware of how many marriages fail and end in divorce, how many bad relationships there are, how many kids have parents that hate each other. But why do you and I say, okay, therefore I want to avoid that and try for a different non-traditional way. Whereas most people just go, yeah, but I'm going to be successful. I can't live my life out of fear and I've got to believe this is going to work. What's different about us, do you think? I don't know. For me, I knew what it was like to feel growing up like everybody around me was blowing up and it was chaos and it was painful and it was terrifying. And I never, ever want my kids to have to go through anything like that. And I was willing to go to extreme lengths and go completely against convention to make sure that my kids were growing up with parents who were dear, dear friends because Mm. the volatility of of passion and intimacy and chemistry to me at the time seemed very suspicious. And I felt like it was, you know, like being nature's bitch just to go along and say, Oh, you get fall in love. And this passion and intimacy is an indication of this magic that's going to happen. And this is your soulmate. And I truly believe that that was, you know, making decisions while intoxicated. That's how I thought about it. And and having children in that would be like laying eggs in a burning nest. So I said, okay, I'm not doing that. Scratch that. But I'm not giving up having kids. I'm not going to not have a family. And I'm not going to be a single parent. So what else is left? And then I was lucky because I, my best friend and colleague at the time in my nonprofit organization was... The, one of the most fine human beings I'd ever met. He just blew my mind at his, the level of integrity he had. And I grew up in Southern California in the 70s. I, I didn't see a lot of that. So to he stuck out as like this incredible person with integrity, with heart, he had character. And I thought, this guy would make the greatest dad. If this guy were the dad of my kids, they would look up to him. The whole world would look up to him. They would feel so much self-respect and self-worth because he has so much class and dignity. And I, I wanted my kids to feel that way about their parents. That you know, you're completely proud to be this person's child. So it wasn't just that I wanted to reject the convention because I was suspicious of it. Like you said, you know, everybody could see that. But I also was blessed to meet, have a friendship and meet somebody that I was just sure would make an incredible parent. So the combination of the two is unbeatable. I thought to myself at the time, I would regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't have kids with this person. Never mind we aren't a, a relationship but this is opportunity knocks, baby. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know right. make it happen. Get the nerve to do this. Sure. but So there was never a romantic component to your relationship? No. I mean, first of all, there was 18 years age difference between us. Mm-hmm. And even though I kind of ran the show <laughs> in a certain way, he was very kind of like a wise elder to me. And, you know, we weren't peers in that respect. We were philosophically and ideologically very much peers, but he was a much more experienced person. I was just starting out in a lot of ways. 
and then just chemistry. You can't jack chemistry. It's either there or it's not. It can be developed with women, I think. Can right. can kind of get turned on if there's if they're not revolted by a man, then they can <laughs> develop chemistry for a man. The way he treats her can cultivate it. Yeah. But for a man, if there's no chemistry there and he had no chemistry for me. And so there was no that was not going anywhere. Wow. So it it, it was a kind of a strange experience deciding to make a baby not from a passion play. Um, it's not for everybody. It was awkward mm. a little bit. But we were so grounded in this so conscious and so honest and so real with each other. There was a kind of brutal, beautiful, strange intimacy in that that is uncommon and stands out. Now, I mean, making our son is one of the most profound experience of, of my life mm. was it like this fabulous sex no but we made our son we did and that was the, how we did it because you know back then we didn't have clinics or i didn't yeah. even know what i didn't even know what turkey basting was <laughs> what? well i thought it was basting a turkey yeah right interesting means something completely different doesn't it <laughs> yeah but what was really fascinating to me as well when I met you and talked to you, aside from the fact that, you know, um, you are such an intelligent and attractive and independent person, is that you sort of saw the world the same way I did in terms of you know, consensual non-monogamy as well. And you mentioned how with women you can find that connection with a guy if it wasn't necessarily instantly there physically because you've had relationships with guys that originally you weren't necessarily physically attracted to but then emotionally as you got to know them you felt way more attracted right no and with those men I never really felt attracted <laughs> I mean chemistry is chemistry and mother nature do we really have free will in that respect? Because we can't be chemically turned on by somebody unless we really have the chemistry. And did we even get any choice in the matter? Mm. So, no, I could say that in the, the relationships that I've chosen to have with someone I had tremendous rapport emotionally and psychologically, we developed a totally trusting, loving relationship, and there was no chemistry. Occasionally, we would take it to an intimate place. But that was usually for healing practices. I never was like, oh, now I have chemistry. <laughs> it was by and large still, but it was worthy because right. it was, it was, we took it into a very spiritual, profound yeah. healing experience. Cause know? I mean, I remember we talked about this yesterday, right? Right. It's, it's, a, it's a really important thing to talk about. I mean, almost nobody does. Yeah. I mean, so, so talk a little bit more about this. I mean, I mean well, explain what happened in that particular instant that we talked about yesterday. Oh, with um, my friend. So mm. for many, many years, I'd say almost two decades now. Yeah, we we briefly encountered each other and then we became very close after about 10 years. So it was 20 years we encountered each other and then at the 10-year point, we started to really get to know each other. So now I think it's been 15 years, really. Mm. So this was like uh, about four years ago when he got really sick and we were extremely good friends, more like family, more like we'd been through so much together. We'd had helped each other through without judgment and preachy teachy and all this crap that most people do to each other. We just somehow wholeheartedly accepted one another. So we walked each other through 
horrible breakups and divorces and custody battles and illnesses and accidents and, you know, every calamity. And we had developed this sort of complete trust and code because we didn't preach and teach and get weird with each other at all about anything where the rest of the world was. I mean, you got to have one safe person, right? That doesn't criticize you and go, well, you could have done it differently. Mm. It's like, okay, baby, what do I need to do to get you out of this? And we had that kind level of profundity. And then he got really, really sick. Um, he got, um, what is it called? It's um, eczema. Eczema. Yeah. It's a genetic thing where, you know, the stress of a, a battle for custody for his kids got so bad that it was just eating him alive. And, the, and it was so it was so inflamed and cracking and bleeding all over his body that he he couldn't bathe a lot because it would just make it worse. He, the oils would leave his skin. And then he had also neglected his dental hygiene. So here's this guy who's like smelly and dirty and we have no natural chemistry. And yet I became completely convinced that if I didn't start making love to him, that he could literally die. Like he was losing his 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 drive to even he hadn't slept in so long it was just torture a lot of people kill themselves who have that level of eczema yeah and i was afraid that if he didn't have some pleasure or something and he was feeling crippled as a man i mean he was like i no one's ever going to want me and he was just he was dying before my eyes and i thought okay i i i know that this we have to save his life and so even though Technically, being with him was for me, like from a chemical standpoint, if I was going to let nature push me around, then I wouldn't do it. But I I let my soul and my loyalty and my love and my friendship, you know, I was loyal to love itself, not nature. And I, it was like I had to force myself. It was disgusting, but it was transcendent because once I had completely freed myself, from the, even the need for self-gratification or to be comfortable or anything, once I'd freed myself from, and I had claimed liberty, I could totally worship and devote myself to my true beloved, which is love itself. And that is the most profound, erotically mind-blowing pleasure I have ever had, where I completely transcended all of that and, and actually felt free will because I don't think we have a lot of free will until we do that. Right. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing, really. I mean, and it's kind of um, in the Western world, we do sort of compartmentalize sex, certainly a lot closer to procreation than it necessarily needs to be. And uh, I think we're getting to this scent now where we understand the healing power of sex, but only within the very narrow schism of how we see it. You know, culturally, if that kind of makes sense, like being a sex healer or a sex worker, whereas you say, you know, someone that you wouldn't necessarily be physically attracted to or chemically attracted to, you can still provide something very positive and nourishing to their soul. I mean, it's, it's funny where we draw the line. I've always said maybe a hundred years ago, we would say, well, if you're a woman and you're single, you can't hug a member of the opposite sex in public because, you know, that's terrible. 
Whereas now that line has gone further. You can hug someone of the opposite sex. Maybe you can even kiss them on the cheek. But to make out with somebody, <laughs> not so much. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I think that line gets pushed further and further back as we go forwards. I talked to Andrew, one of my good friends, about this. And most of the people I meet in the poly community do believe that we're on the verge of a major revolution, major social change in terms of how we relate to each other. Now, Andrew says that he doesn't believe this. He believes that the reason this isn't going to happen is because there isn't enough conflict in the world to make it happen. He says the major societal changes that have happened have happened because there's been major dramatic conflict which is visible to the average person. When you think of the civil rights movement in the 60s, it was you know the advent of TV and middle-class white America who were watching these abhorrent things on TV um, with all these people of uh, African-American heritage I think what he's trying to say is that um, people are sort of understanding enough now to where there isn't that visceral, oh my God, people who are non-monogamous are really treated badly, therefore we need to change the world so that they're more accepted. But there is still enough um, objection to that sort of lifestyle that it makes it very uncomfortable for people. Well, the key is... When I go to present at conferences for people who are interested in polyamory, they specifically ask me to come to help them understand how they would navigate having a family and using parenting partnership principles to shape a family that has integrity and will stay intact and have the status and respect of the community. And I'm kind of the bringer of bearer, bearer of bad news in those conferences because I say, well, you know, you'll have be confined to some place like California where you have protection laws that if you have two moms and a dad, they can't legally take your child away. But in Nevada, yeah, if you have two moms and a dad and you have no other, nothing else going on, your neighbor can call the police and they'll come take your kid. Wow. So you, that's the bad news. So yes, we are, they are persecuted. And like, I don't think he realizes how many people are just being quiet to avoid persecution, especially legally, right. which gives an impression that there aren't as many people as there are and gives an impression that there aren't as much persecution as there are because they're just avoiding it. And now where it erupts is where there's kids. Nobody gives a shit what you want to do in the bedroom. They really don't. Who cares? But when you've got kids involved, that's what moves a needle. When gay people are adopting children, that's what moves a needle. This is when you start to get a push on um, same-sex marriage. This is why they have changed the law in Florida and now California to allow more than two parents on a birth certificate. That could be three or four. Why? They, nobody cares whether they're poly or not. They just the rights of children have always been championed, and it, it is a right of a child to be uh, allowed to legally hold accountable, or that the state would champion the rights of the child to have legally accountable parents, and as many as are actually morally accountable, be legally indicated. The, so that's changed. The the whatever the freedoms of and the cultural exception acceptance of of unique families, including poly families, is going to come from the championing of children's rights. Period. 
It's not going to come from people saying, I just want to be free to express myself and walk down the street hand in hand with my two lovers. That's not going to happen. You two lovers have some kids. Now that's going to happen. If if anybody really, really cares about making uh, alternative life that doesn't hurt anyone else, sexual lifestyles, whatever, if you really care about that, have kids. Have kids, be visible, have kids, join the PTA, have, and be involved in, you know, society. Right. Um, that's going to be the change. It's going to be a little volatile. You have to have the courage and the balls to, to do that and stand up for your kids and teach your kids to have the words to stand up for themselves because they're going to get teased. They're going to get bullied and there could be some legal problems because nobody's challenged it. Hardly yeah. ever. You've got some, Rogue, you know, factions of religious people, Mormons, or, you know, very few people have challenged this. And California has really the only, you know, history of legal challenge. Mm. Terry Brussels challenged the system and she won it for everyone. That if you are a poly family in California and you've got kids, nobody can take your kids away because she paid the price. I think she had her kids taken away four times before she pounded on the system to make the law different, to make it fair for other people. Wow. We have her to thank. But the rest of the country, not so much. (laughs) Right. So good luck with that. I think you have to really be somebody who's more of an activist and outspoken and not freaked out about talking about difficult things. And, yeah, you know, so it's not just, oh, whether I want to have kids or not or have this lifestyle or not. If you do, you're going to be a pioneer. The road for the pioneer is bumpy. Yeah. Do you feel that like having kids in a parenting partnership or being non-monogamous, which do you think is more difficult in today's society in America, in the less um, understanding areas of the country? Well, it's a very good question. Um, people are have a harder time talking about non-conventional sexuality at a dinner party. So there's, a, mm. you know, it's less opportunity to educate and to advocate because, um, those kind conver- if I do bring it up, it gets shut down really fast or I get treated as a novelty or dismissed. Yeah. Uh, talking about non-monogamy. Um, but everybody wants to talk to you and the camera crews come and they stick, you know, everybody wants to know about my unique family. Oh my gosh, she did this 26 years ago. And then she did it again. And she has a seven year old and she's doing it again. Oh my gosh. And, and it's, they, again, there's the whole novelty, but not so much. Lots of people say, Oh wow, I would do that. Or I know somebody who do that. Or I wish I had known about that. Now the conversation gets juicy and keeps going and it's circulated and they come back and they ask me more questions. But non-monogamy just gets shut down. Now, I introduce it as a way to save families. That's the where I got the traction so I can get that conversation going. And somebody says, oh, we're on the rocks, we're breaking up. And I go, wait, wait, wait. You could renegotiate your relationship, decouple. It's a good word for it. And renegotiate your relationship as polyamorous or a parenting partnership. There's so many ways to stay right. intact. Don't blow your fa- your kid's family apart because you saw it in 20 million scripts say that that's the, that's a storyline. Yeah. Don't walk that path. Here are a whole bunch of alternatives that work for lots of people. So that is exciting to me because I get to introduce the concept in a way that, again, is 
in service of keeping those kids' families intact. Mm. So now we can talk about it. Right. I think that's the back door. It's also relevant. It's also right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because everybody that I've met in the poly community essentially came from a traditional monogamous monogamous relationship. Well, who didn't? (laughs) Well, you. Right. But almost everybody uh, comes from that kind of traditional thing. Yeah. Right. Almost everybody. You really are the unicorn in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that, again, this is something that can really help people. Um, just if you can be open-minded enough to get your head around it, you know? So you mentioned there you've done this now a, a second time. Uh, you have a wonderful daughter, Grace, who I've been lucky enough to meet and hang out with, with a wonderful parenting partner, Paul. Um, the same thing applies. Mm-hmm. Talk us a little bit about that because this is something, after you had Jesse, your first um, kid, you wanted to do it again, right? Pretty quickly. Why did it take so long for you to actually do it? <laughs> 15 years of... Humiliation and rejection. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't like I could, I, I thought, oh, well, this is incredible and it's fabulous and everyone's going to see that and it won't be a big deal. But my son's dad did not want to have more kids. He was so extremely happy with one kid. He was like mm. a zero population guy philosophically and also he's kind of a devil's advocate kind of personality. So he thought... This is perfect. It's almost idyllic. What are the odds that it would be the same? We could have a weird kid. We can have a bad kid. I don't want to ruin my life by taking a chance where I have like the perfect kid and the perfect parenting partner. I'm Mm. done. Now, that was a huge upset in our life because I assumed that success meant we were going to have a whole lot more kids. He assumed that success meant that, yep, check that off your, you know, that's off my bucket list. I have right. a kid. <laughs> you didn't discuss you know, that before? You know, this is something I put in my book because, you know, we didn't. We took for granted, and that's the problem, uh. um, that what what it meant to succeed. It never occurred to me that he wouldn't want to have more kids if we if we were super successful. Um, that was a shocker. And, of course, I... I I warn people, you really got to say, oh, what's, what are we going to do? Like people talk through the worst case scenario, but they don't talk through the best case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So I had to go find another parenting partner and it really, I, I became so criticized for it. And why would you want to do that? And oh, honey, you're smart and and successful and attractive. Surely you could find a husband like that. I uh, this isn't my plan B, y'all. This yeah. is my plan A. Yeah. And I couldn't find anybody to do it with, and and unless I was going to sweeten the deal with some honey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I kind of, I, I at times I I nearly gave up and tried to you know, have kids in a conventional relationship and it was a disaster. And I'm like, you know what? This is a proof of concept. I like this. It works for me, works for my kids. I'm, you know, this is the right, this is my plan A. So I kept persevering, trying to find some, but there wasn't those websites that we met on. They didn't exist, you know, until like four years ago. Right. So (laughs) I'd already had grace with my son's godfather by then, which, you know, was a, the best choice I could have made at the time, given who I knew in my circle of family and friends. But right. I had to talk him into it. It was <laughs> rigorous. Talk a little bit about that, because, you know, I didn't realize until we'd gone to Santa Barbara 
a couple of weekends ago and actually talked to him and watched some of the videos of, of how he used to be like a, a big name within America. I mean, he was on a number of TV shows and everything else like that. You mentioned it very briefly to me, but until you see it, um, it's a different thing. Oh, no, he's he's hugely famous. It wasn't just a few TV shows. I mean, it was, you know, Newsweek. I mean, he was a big deal. I mean, he became famous for introducing entire new food genre and introducing natural foods into commercial um, markets and introducing a natural food or any product, a brand, onto menus. So he was famous for being this... Um, you know, celebrity chef and food formulator and product designer and created Garden Burger, but he was also famous for being this incredibly innovative, creative business person. He, I mean, he, his company was the fastest growing stock in America, I think twice. And so right today, business schools all over the country are still studying what he did because wow. it was like a, you know, a quadruple threat as far as historical meaning for the total different you know change mm. that happened and now we've got whole foods and we've got sprouts and we've got all the that have just taken over and so they consider him one of the guys who sort of spearheaded that he's brilliant he's he's a creative genius he's driven he's I, he has great ideas and i wanted that genius and with you know for my child's other DNA. Yeah. <laughs> now, did I think he was going to be this great hands-on parent? No. Did he want to be? No. He wanted to just continue to gallivant across the world, doing business and being a workaholic and traveling all the time and didn't want to be saddled with uh, the day-to-day -day grind of, of raising kids. And I was like, cool, that's fine. You don't have to do that. I will do that. In fact, my son's dad and I will do that. Just pay the bills. <laughs> gotcha. So that was <laughs> that, your agreement. That was our agreement. Yeah. And he got to be, you know, he could, of course, he could have any access he wanted to the, the children. We're going to have two. That was the agreement. And that they could have, he would be their dad in status and revered and he could come and go holidays, summers, whatever he wanted. And everybody was really happy about that agreement. It was like a three-way agreement. Yeah. Because it wasn't a sexual romantic relationship, it wasn't a poly parenting, but it sure is plural parenting. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it didn't work out quite that way, right? No. The recession hit and he lost like a lot of his money, which was kind of shocking for a multi, 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 multi millionaire. Like, who invests their money that poorly? <laughs> who doesn't diversify? I don't know. Nouveau riche. So he was nouveau riche and he fell the way of so many that did in the recession holding too much real estate and he lost a lot of his money so but it wasn't the worst thing in the world i mean i had been used to being the primary earner my first parenting partnership we negotiated before we even conceived our son that i was the more powerful earner yeah. i mean ironically i was you know so much younger than him but i was driven and i made money and i built businesses and he was like not going to do any of that nope not really. And I accepted that. I totally respected that he was so honest about it. He's like, I'm really not going to make that kind of money. Just don't want to. I'm willing to live like really modestly. And if you are willing to do that too, we can live at that standard. But if you want anything more than that, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> and I said, got it. Been doing it. Going to continue to do it. But this time I really wanted to stay home with, be the stay at home parent. I wanted to turn at the home. So that was why I wanted to do it. But didn't work out that way, so I just went back to my same old tricks of 
working my ass off and providing for my family. And I did a good job. I'm proud of that. Was yeah. it what I set out to do? You roll with the punches. I roll with the punches. Because really, the beauty about a parenting partnership is it simplifies it so well. Mm. What is best for the kid? The whole point of being together is to nurture a human being and meet their needs. What is best for the child? Right. And it cuts out all the crap. Like, am I attractive anymore? Did you look at her? How is the sex? Do you think we're going to stay together? None of that stuff matters. Right. Are we meeting the needs of the kid? All right. We're successful. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because another point that Andrew made when we talked to him is that What's important for a kid, he feels, also, is to see that love and affection that is um, a facet of a romantic sexual relationship between your parents so that as your child grows up, they know how to relate in that way to somebody that they're attracted to. Do you feel that with a parenting partnership, they miss out on that side of things or not? They can. It doesn't have to be that way. In our case, I could say absolutely that was totally the weakest link in the whole design. Mm. We set out to completely encourage and support each other to find also a life mate. It wasn't mutually exclusive. It's like, okay, we'll handle the parenting and the kids so we don't have the insecurity to ever be a breakup. And you're still single and free to find, keep searching for, you know, the beautiful, perfect lover or the life yeah. mate or whatever it is you want. We were still discovering that in the first place. So we were very relieved to handle the kid part. But the I did, the vision was is that we would both end up mated and that our kid would have plenty of examples of what it meant to right. be in a passion play and passionate relationship without destabilizing his life yeah. or her life. Absolutely. So we had a plan, but here's the thing. In our case, we both had a tendency to be very involved in our causes and very involved in our work and kind of avoid the whole intimacy thing. And unfortunately for us, it was the right choice for us to be parenting partners, but we, it, we, the parenting partnership enabled us to even avoid it more because Uh, we were super happy. Yeah. I mean, we were just like falling all over ourselves thrilled to be raising this child together and had a really great time. Like, did he date sometimes? Did I date sometimes? Yes. But we, we probably could have worked hard at it and we didn't, we didn't prioritize it. Yeah. Um, did our son get dragged through a lot of turbulent relationships of us, you know, breaking up? No. I mean, that's nice. But you're right. He didn't get like a real witness of this ooey gooey loving tenderness. Now, I feel bad about that. I really do. In my heart of hearts, I feel I cheated him. And I'm doing it again with my daughter. And this is not good. I really, really want to make that different. But boy, I'm an old dog. And I've learned some, (laughs) I have a very hard for me to learn new tricks. And I'm, I've got baggage from my my history that, you know, where I my mom dragged me through all kinds of turbulent breakups. My whole, everybody in my family did. It was just, I'd get attached to somebody and they'd be gone in three months. And yeah. that was my aunt's relationships, my uncle's relationship, even my grandparents' relationship, my mother's relationship, my father's relationship. It was like a revolving door and I was brokenhearted all the time. Yeah. So it was uncool. And so I was super allergic to the idea. I overreacted and I still have, there's still hope for me. Like I really want to do more work on myself about that and, and get myself into a more, 
um, ongoing, visible, um, maybe even domestic intimate relationship where my daughter can enjoy that because she's especially traumatized by it. <laughs> she's so upset. She's Every time she sees an attractive man that I'm talking to, she's like, you should kiss him. Yeah, I want to see you kiss. I want to see what that's like. Like, please kiss somebody. I've never seen you kiss anybody, mom. It's like, okay, I suck. But that's not parenting partnerships fault. That's my fault. That's just yeah. me my history, me being, you know, not really taking on my own recovery from my own childhood issues, but it didn't have to be like that. And if I had been more engaged with non-monogamy and you'll be, you pick your battles. I'm already battling my ass off about so much yeah. um, non-conformist issues that I just didn't want to take on. Oh, let's try a non-monogamous. I mean, it just, it was a lot. So I mm. prioritized and I missed out. And so did my kids. But that doesn't have to be the case for millennials. Millennials right. are different. Ooh, they have it. You, there's the stigmas of so many things are lifted. The freedoms are there. They just don't have this restrictive thing going on. I mean, millennials can have parenting partnerships. They can have plural relationships. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, beautiful. it's it's a changing world very much so, for sure. I often feel like maybe I'm just going to be one generation too late. We are. Yeah. We're screwed. Well, we are totally. We are the we are the dropout exer weirdo generation that's in between two generations that are really significant. And we're we're kind of just we're we're we just are unlucky. <laughs> yeah, I you mean, know? you could say that, but then again, if you look back to previous generations, people of the sixties and the seventies that now are revered because of how they lived their life in a culture that was very antagonistic to that, and they probably felt the same way. They probably felt like in thirty or forty years, they'd be what they were saying and what they were standing for would be very accepted. Well, that's why I persevere because I want to be known as the the godmother of parenting partnership you know mm -hmm. and when it's just a thing when you're you know in college and you're talking to your friends you know are you gonna have a parenting partnership or no are you gonna get a you know monogamous marriage or are you gonna be in a plural marriage or you know that's something that they'll just be like normal like all the options that they have and yeah. discuss the nuance of why that would be good for them or not they'll be able to customize they're gonna think of me <laughs> the pioneer that blazed the first trail yeah. and and that it'll all be worth it. And my kids, especially, I think I advocate publicly for my kids. I mean, I care about the world and I'm very egalitarian, as you know, but when it really gets down to it, I consider it a part of my role as a mother to push the walls out for them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I march and parades and do all this stuff and we're useless. I mean, our generation did a lot of good things. I think for freedom of sexual expression. Mm -hmm. I mean, we helped to put the LGBT thing together when it was just gay and lesbian rights. Right. Um, it was a big deal to get us bisexuals visible and part of the the ride of equality and also resources to you know level the playing field for us too, because mm. we were hated by the lesbian and gay community too. Yeah. And the, the heterosexual community. So, yeah, I think that that's the, the, the more freedom and and visibility and, and understanding for the, for human sexuality. I think that we push that down the road a lot. Hmm. Will we be acknowledged for it? I don't know. <laughs> You've written a book about it and you're being, you know, interviewed for various different documentaries. And the, oh, news. the, the more of that sort of carbon footprint that you put down, so to speak. 
Garbage. I don't like that happen. analogy. Can you make a new one? Because I'm an environmental activist. You don't want to say, oh. Silicone the, then, really. The it's, a, it's a silicone footprint, liquid. isn't it? Silicone. That sounds like breasts that are implanted. You know. No, Can silicone. you just come up with a different one? Just, just rewind. The majority just, of components of a computer is silicone. Therefore, uh, in a digital world, it's a silicone footprint. Maybe I just uh, happenstanced over something that just created a concept but it's interesting to me you know, you're talking about your bisexuality um my other only other prospective parenting partner is bisexual also and i wonder whether that sort of plays a part in being open enough to consider a parenting partnership necessarily well when you're born in a way that makes conformity completely takes it off the table mm. yeah you're forced into thoroughly considering your options so um, parenting partnerships have been going on a long time in the gay and lesbian communities. They have? Yeah, of course. I mean, they've been, oh, I see. Know, like the, they've been on the DL a lot of yeah. it, you know. I mean, a lot of situations would happen with the lavender or convenience marriage because there was inheritance at stake and then you got this, uh, and there is, um, you know, social acceptance and the jobs on the line. And so yeah. gays and lesbians have historically married each other and had a, you know, shielded each other from all those consequences and even had children right. but they were had an understanding inside their house yeah um so that's been going on for a long time right but um now it's the, it's it's also the heterosexual world people who do have a choice but for those of us so your question is like you know those of us that are born not straight and conventional right out the gate yeah um, necessity is a mother of invention. <laughs> like, all right. And that was part of my, I mean, it wasn't just the divorces and all the, you know, my, my theories about evolution or whatever that prompted me to be a parenting partner instead of have a nuclear family. It wasn't just that. It was also the fact that I'm bisexual and I'm like, okay, how is a monogamous relationship with a man really going to work at the long run with me? Yeah. I didn't feel like I was better or more gifted or I would meet somebody and our soulmate love would be so pure that we would beat the odds. I was pretty concerned about my ability to do something like that. Not because I'm a flake. There is a stigma around bisexuals that they're hedonist. We can't be gratified. We have an unbottomless appetite for sexuality. It couldn't be farther from the, the... I mean, most bisexuals I know are so neurotic i mean we're constantly thinking everything through and comparing because we can it's like back and forth back and forth so you know we could just compare and think and do i want to be with a man do i want to be with a woman and do i can i be with both and will they you know, can i get away with that and is that morally right and society and what if i want to have kids and oh my god we think ourselves to death yeah if i had done that i wouldn't have kids right god so right. the parenting partnership allowed me to even have kids yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm I'm the same. I do think myself to death. Um, <laughs> oh, you resemble that remark. I'm just not bisexual. <laughs> I don't even like my own cock most of the time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, you don't like your own cock most of the time. You know, we we, we got to talk about this. I think you have some self-loathing issues. We have to oh, do. there's no doubt about that for I just, sure. I, you know, because you're a role model when you have kids, and all of your attitudes towards yeah. your body, they will have those attitudes towards their bodies. So I right. would, I, you, you know, this is something to really wrestle with and say. Okay. I love myself. I'm beautiful. My body try. carries me around and is like an obedient slave. It's like a dog. It does everything I wanted to do and I, I'm mean to it and it's still loyally there for me. 
Mm. I mean, we just have to to accept that because our kids pick up with from that. Yeah, no, very much. I'm definitely aware of that. I'm so upset that Grace has picked up that from her dad and from Uh, society. And she's got all these hangups and she's constantly obsessively questioning herself. She's seven. And I'm thinking I'm outnumbered. I mean, I have such a wholesome love and appreciation for my body, but the whole rest of the world, every, all her impressions everywhere else are like self hatred, body hatred, evaluating and measuring. And it's just not good enough. If you've got a piece of wobbly something, you know, (laughs) what it sounds to me like is here's a beautiful, glorious, infinite garden. That's just awe inspiring, bursting with life and color. And then there's just this little rock that's out of place. Right. And to just fixate on that rock and stop thinking about this beautiful, glorious garden. First of all, it's insane. That's irrational. That's yeah. a, that would be a, a certifiable right there. So I don't know what to do about it. But you are, that's my main, that's my, one of my main issues with you actually. Okay. I will, I will endeavor to work on that for well, sure. Well, you know, the, the place to start is they get curious and in, inwardly focused for a minute and say, when did I first start to question my worth of my body or how when did i start to weigh it with a certain image yeah it's not a body issue it's a self-worth issue and it comes from being raised in england where we're all taught that any outward display of being happy and and comfortable in your body is um arrogant and self-aggrandizing, you know, you're Whoa. taught to be humble and, you know, just, I don't know, it's just, it's just what I picked up from society over there. And, and there's great examples to the contrary, even within that culture who are revered. Um, it's just interesting why some of us choose to go in one direction and some of us choose to go in another direction, which I guess brings me back to the point about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy because this is something that at the same time as you were thinking about a parenting partnership you were also thinking that you didn't want to be in a monogamous relationship and you talked briefly there about the bisexual nature being part of that but talk about remember you told me about a relationship you were in that was good to all intents and purposes but there were certain things that weren't being fulfilled therefore you suggested that your boyfriend got another girlfriend well I mean I at the time, I considered that we were married, common law married. I mean, um, in in, the, in this scenario that happened with him, it was you know the most significant, important relationship of my life. But this this situation had happened repeatedly, over and over again, with all of my relationships since I was first started having relationships. Was like what seventeen years old. Uh-huh. Um, the scene. This is the scene. Here's the pattern. I'm in this great relationship. I'm super happy. I have no complaints, but for the most part, I'm a champion of causes. My first foremost focus has never really been coupling. It's been championing causes for the greater good. And then when I had kids, my kids, and then some kind of relationship would come sort of farther down the line. Well, that was really quite frustrating for, for other people to be with me. It's, it's mm. kind of hard to have a, you know, try and be with Superman. Yeah. You know? they, they fly through and they're like on some kind of, you know, mission. And I don't do the whole dance of the, you know, fighting and making up. And I'm like, are you kidding? That's petty. I'm saving the world. I have no business fighting. I just won't do the dance. It's frustrating. And my solution has always been 
please, please, please get another partner. I don't want you, I don't want to be traded in. I don't want to lose you. Precisely why I don't want to lose you. I don't want you to trade me in for somebody who will, I want to keep this relationship. Please don't leave me. And I want to solve, and you're valid. It's valid that you want these needs. You have this capacity for this kind of intimacy and this kind of time, this kind of relationship, mm. and I don't. And I don't want, I love you so much, I don't want you to suffer without that. I want you to have that. And on top of that, I'm so queer that I'm not even remotely threatened. In fact, it's a huge turn on. <laughs> so please, please, please get another girlfriend. And you would think that's every man's fantasy. Ha! Huh, not Right. No, especially with me. It might have been their fantasy, but for some reason, there I have so many. I'm, you know, the Madonna whore thing can really be a schism for people, mm. and it's been a schism for me because I am really good, really wholesome, really honorable, re- have a lot of integrity. All these things that tip off a man to feel like, especially men and women, mate, wife, life partner. Yeah. They're right. Yeah. I'm a really good catch. But that triggers all those feelings of of possessiveness and, and us and one and onlys. And, and I'm like, okay, that's awesome that I have all that. I'm a keeper. But I'm not a keeper for that coupling thing. It's just not going to work because I'm a cause person. I'm, I'm going all over the place. You need a domestic partner who's going to be your primary person to fulfill those needs. I'm a great tertiary partner. Yeah. But it's very hard for tertiary partners to go get someone to go get a primary partner. Right. <laughs> that doesn't work in the poly world. You could go find somebody to ask about that. And then, of course, I'm not a unicorn either. It's fun, you know, people will go, oh, let's get a, a girlfriend. And, you know, like it's a play thing. Right. And no, no, you, nobody wants to not take me seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I do affect too many people's lives, you know? Right. So, no, I'm, I've, I found it very frustrating. Ironically, it's, you know, because I am, I am a person that people take very seriously to plan their lives and, and think about having kids with that kind of has uh, barred me from, from creating that fantasy because so many people have made it this dirty little secret. Mm. And I'm like, no, this is a wholesome, perfectly sound idea for our family Yeah, to keep our family more intact. Because what does it always come down to with me? Intact family. Do I believe that a, a, a non-monogamous relationship would cause a greater likelihood of an intact family? Yes. In my case, yes. Right. I'm much better off having a backup plan. I want a co-mom. I'd rather be co-wife or what you know i want help <laughs> yeah well we all need help and again it speaks back to the idea that originally and again i, I quote often from sex at dawn that we evolved from a species that lived in nomadic tribes that were very egalitarian that shared everything in terms of resources and sexuality was a resource as much anything else and it was used to form bonds between the members of the tribe as much as just procreation you know and so this speaks to that being the way that we used to be in the way where perhaps we still are hardwired inherently within our genes Right. And then, so I, I feel that I've given myself an enormous amount of permission since I was very young to connect profoundly to that ancient wisdom that's coming out of a a primal place in my body. And Mm. I know this into my core. It's not like I'm conforming to something to please a society's expectations of me. I arrived at this from being honoring my body, my soul, how I really feel, not being threatened by what other people would think 
of me. Oh, well, or, you know, or, or my partner. I mean, many women are, who are, who share their mate, their male mate are afraid for their male mate because they don't want people to think he's a chauvinist pig. Hmm. So they hide for that reason. Yeah. They could be seriously happy. It could have been the women's idea. Yeah. They could have been a couple and got him, but they still will protect him from the judgment. They don't they they feel the loyalty to their lover. They don't want him to take that kind of heat and they will hide that right. relationship. Yeah. So it, it, it we we hide for all kinds of reasons. You sure. But so that relationship when you were younger, obviously, you were 21, 22 at the time, didn't work out well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he end up actually getting in a relationship with the girl that you'd suggested and then sort of splitting up with you, right? Um, actually, they both dumped me. It was very, it was actually right. one of those, uh, you'd think that I would have given up. I was so hurt and so shocked. And to this day, I, I tears can come. Yeah. Because. It was my. It was the first shock when I realized that my grand, smart, fabulously brilliant ideas were not welcome. Yeah. And not had no. It cannot compete with the the rigor of the programming of society's expectation. It didn't matter how loving I was, and how much I wanted to serve the greater good of my loved ones. It didn't matter. I was immediately accused. Of everything from trying a sleazy, low dirt dog, dirty way to get rid of my man. Mm. I was accused of trying to give my sloppy seconds to my best friend. I was accused of all kinds of things. It was, I was shocked. Yeah. And that was my big, like, welcome to the world, baby. Smack. I got spanked. My outcoming, uh, my first attempt at creating a conscious monogamous relationship to answer my problems because I was... I was dancing eight hours a day. I was getting into being an environmental activist. I was like 16, 18 years old and I was engaged. Yeah. And my fiance was tortured by this. I mean, he was so loyal and devoted. He was, he would just wait for me. Mm. He would just wait for me. He loved me so much. And it hurt me that he was so alone. He was just waiting for me. I thought, is he going to wait for me for decades? And he's going to be, we have kids and he's going to be like the, like number two. 25 on my list mm. and I went this is not going to work for him and then my best friend also was just heartbroken that I moved away that I was in art school and that I, you know you have never time for me and and I went the light bulb went off mm. let's get these good these two together and there was other reasons be, that they had I mean she had been treated badly and he was just freaking saint and i wanted yeah. her to get a taste of what it was like to be touched by somebody who didn't use her right and they both dumped me i lost my best friend and my fiance Ugh. in one day because of my bright idea right because of my bright idea so i i feel it's like tragic. i've been paying the price it's yeah it's hard to have the nerve to try yeah yeah absolutely really but i did i did keep trying because i was like you know what they didn't get it, and that hurts a lot. But my bright idea is still good. It comes from, yeah. honestly, they were wrong about me. It came from the most sincere and loving place. I worship love. I'm married to love. Everything I do is pretty much in service to love. It's not because I'm trying to get more gratification or or make it convenient for me or make it more comfortable for me or be a coward about mm. taking responsibility for how I hurt other people. No. It's because I see how expanded, bigger love can, bigger love, oh my God, that can can be an answer to the needs of my loved ones that I can't meet by myself. Yeah, absolutely. and I don't, And I don't want to constantly be afraid 
that I'm going to lose another person that I want in my life forever. Amen. Because I can't meet all their needs. Right. I don't even feel bad about it. I don't think I ever, if I was the most perfect person in the world, I still wouldn't be able to meet all their needs. Yeah. Right. I, 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 don't, I don't fool myself. I think that love is not finite. Love is exponential. Mm. That's the biggest lie told in the whole wide world. That's how I, I open my talks when I present it in polyamorous community events. I say, here's the biggest lie ever told that people actually keep believing today. The nature of love is not finite. There's not just a short amount to go around and you all have to fight like a dog to get your peace. When someone loves someone else, it's not taking some love from you. That just means there's more love to go around. Yeah. What is finite, what is worth fighting for is resources and time. Right. Resources and time are limited. Energy, resources, and time. And you got to negotiate for your piece of that. Mm -hmm. And and so if you're in a non-monogamous relationship, you got to stand up for yourself. You can't just go, oh, there's just going to be enough to go around. No, there's enough love to go around. But if you need it, you need more time, you need more resources, you need more energy, yeah. you got to ask for it. you got to find gotta it. you got to communicate. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So there's a skill set there. Right. But still, seriously, the whole world is crazy. <laughs> they truly believe yeah. that if you, if I... If you, if I go and love this person, that's going to take away that love you would have. Right. Yeah. That's completely insane, people. Well, it, it's it's not insane in the sense that as Don't a child. Him. Don't defend them. Hey, listen, man. <laughs> <I can't know. laughs> as a child, you feel that way. That's why you hate your brother or sister to a certain extent because – you know, certainly if you were the first sibling born, now somebody else comes that takes away not just your resources in terms of, you know, a, a breast and a loving parent, but also time and, and, and love as well That you, as you feel it. Now, of course, as you grow up, you're taught, well, that's irrational and that's unfair. And within our society, as a love from a parent to a child we're on the same page but once you become an adult and it get into a sexual relationship then you revert to that almost infantile notion that love is finite and it's crazy that is what's crazy uh, but it comes from a rational place of being an infant and a small child well that level of narcissism is totally completely healthy and natural and normal for children Right. It's also actually normal for single adults hmm. to be self-serving. Um, you know, not not to harm anybody else, but to be completely self-absorbed and self-serving. Yeah. The trick is is when you want to be a parent or you want to have an ongoing committed loving a lover stay and build a life together with that lover or several lovers, you've now got to grow up. And move into the awareness, the adult awareness, which is the perspective of the of the parent that says, I have one baby. I have another baby. I don't divide my finite amount of love between my children. Mm. I actually grew. And I have more love to give even for even everybody else around us because I have these two more children. So it's just, I think, yeah, when I say they're crazy, I mean they're stunted developmentally. Yeah, I think people do not grow up, um, and and in a lot of ways, my com chief complaints of not growing up are magical thinking. It's just, 
oh, I will meet my prince. I will meet my princess. And it's just going to be such a perfect match that everything was just magically unhappily ever after. Mm. That and then the, yes, the infantile idea that love is finite and I've got to fight for my little wedge. Right. And I got a mate guard. I mean, this mate guarding is cool to a certain extent, but when there's a real threat. Yeah. You don't mate guard when there's no threat. Right. That's insane. You become the threat when you mate guard when there's no threat. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Look at him. You know, this whole jealousy thing that's not coming from an actual threat. It's coming from complete and total irrational infantile insecurity. Perceived threat, for sure, yeah. Because real jealousy is a perceived threat to a valued relationship. I actually went to a, a workshop. Hmm. when I was like 16 because I had no jealousy. Right. So I was like, what is this jealousy thing that people are talking about? I have no <laughs> idea what you're... I mean, everybody's like, well, he got jealous and that's why they had a fight. I'm like, what's jealousy? I literally didn't understand it. So I went to this workshop for an entire weekend yeah. by the jealousy doctor in San Diego. Right. And they, he said, it's a perceived threat to a valued relationship. The problem is, is when there is no real threat. <laughs> right. Well, well, let me... This just occurred to me... Because growing up, you said you had a lot of very difficult relationships, or perhaps you didn't have that many valued relationships, and therefore to feel jealous of losing a valued relationship was a difficult concept for you to understand. I don't know. Um, yeah, you're on to something. I mean, I'm a little different because I had such a, a really disastrous childhood, sure. so you're right about not having much to defend. Right, you but know? then by the same token, though, did you not, not see other people that had those loving, valued relationships and feel jealous of them? Yes, I was envious, but you have to understand as a child, I, my self-worth and my self-esteem was so broken down or so malformed uh. that it it had it had never occurred to me i didn't have like a self-worth then that was challenged and somebody made me feel bad i had no self-worth to begin with so there wasn't it never occurred to me that i could ever have that i was never requalified i was so completely unwanted and unloved mm. that to yeah I, I had a longing sensation like oh my gosh it was, it was so nice if someone would brush my hair like that that it would attend to me like that mm. And I would be kind of annoyed when I see a child would like scoff at a, a, a mom. was like, stop messing with me. Stop funny. And I'd be like, oh, oh, I would, you could do it to me. Yeah. Because I never got that. So did I feel jealousy? I felt um, a longing kind of envy. Mm -hmm. But I never felt like I would, I could ever have that. Right. I would never boast so much to think that I could ever have that. I was clearly unwanted. I was clearly not like that girl yeah that girl was wanted not me right you know? and so you can certainly understand you had a very difficult traumatic childhood but yeah, you're but such I'm, a very like well-adjusted person now yeah now again this that's is a booby prize baby <laughs> i'm not jealous because i got you know got broken out of me but everybody else has to wrestle with it and you know I, it was a booby prize to my terrible childhood right but something happened um where you had um therapy right I did, you know, really, really effective and intense long therapies, probably 25 years of working on myself, wow. not just in conventional therapy, but 
really sincerely working myself, working with mentors and teachers and yeah. having my psychological ass kicked every day, trainers, leadership training, right. personal growth seminars and counter workshops. You know, I did everything, but mostly challenging myself sincerely, wanting to recover, wanting to get better, wanting yeah. to be a valued member of society, wanting to be good, wanting to be honest, wanting to be authentic, wanting to be real, wanting to share myself. Mm. Find people, find them who will accept you. Don't just recreate it and be right about it, you know? Like, I've been working my ass off, and I, it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you really should be very proud because I've noticed in the limited amount of time that I've known you that you're very open to constructive criticism and you take it on board, and there's this deep, sort of genuine desire to be a better person inside yourself and there's no ego to say well he said this and you know who does he think he is because <laughs> i paid so much money for it <laughs> i paid <laughs> right. i paid hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. in therapy because i was i because of my injury as a kid i could not get insurance so i'm one of those jerks that was uninsurable right. from the time i was a child so i had to pay out of pocket everything you, Hundreds of thousands Jesus. of dollars, therapy, physical therapy, uh, wow. um, everything. I paid for everything. Right. I would be a multimillionaire today. I, I stopped counting when I uh, at a million out of pocket on medical expenses and emotional yeah. stuff. Well, actually, that was just medical expenses. I, but if I had added in like, you know, paying a psychotherapist. Mm. So, yeah, when you give me constructive criticism, like, oh, freebie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to fight it. It might cost me money next time. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. You're, you're a remarkable person. I remember the day that I met you, we went for a coffee and within 20 minutes, I just remember thinking to myself, I, I don't know if I've ever met someone that I've been this impressed with. <laughs> Seriously. It's, you know, it, it, it speaks well to you. It really does. Um, <laughs> but there was a controversial, if you will, use of a certain drug in some of that therapy. Was it right? Oh, yeah. I mean... Talk about that because I found it fascinating. Well, that's it. One week closer to Six Feet Under. Thanks for listening and being part of the journey. Drop me a line if you think you or someone you know here in Los Angeles would be a good parenting partner for me. Before you go, though, you know the deal. Like, subscribe, comment, post a review, show some love back next week but if you want to know more before then you can read my weekly blog at nigelwrestling.com forward slash blogs you can buy my t-shirts there book me for your event or a party or just send me a nice message wherever you are whoever you are i hope you find kindness and love be happy mm-hmm.